Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Affidavit for a search warrant, state of Michigan, county of Oakland, AA. Affiant further states that Affiant spoke to FBI agent Thomas McDonald and reviewed a report written by McDonald and is thereby informed of the following. McDonald interviewed Charles Bush, Christopher Bush's brother, on April 22, 2008. Charles said that at the time of Christopher's death, his parents had a white-haired Welsh terrier. Christopher also had a light tan-colored dog. Both dogs were at the house on the day of Christopher's body being discovered. Charles said that after Christopher had been charged with molesting a child, that Charles was told by their brother, X, now deceased, that X's sons had said they were also molested by Christopher. B, B. Affiant further states that Affiant has obtained and viewed photographs of the bedroom that had been taken on the day Bush's body was discovered. A penciled drawing was pinned to a wall of the bedroom. The picture depicts a screaming boy wearing a hooded jacket. Affiant has compared the drawing to photographs and composites of Mark Stebbins, victim number one, and believes there to be a very strong resemblance in respect to the facial features, hair, and clothing that Mark Stebbins was wearing during the time of his disappearance and when his body was discovered. The photographs also show that in a closet there are several pieces of rope on the floor. One piece of rope appears to have a dark red stain. The size and color of the rope are of the type believed to have been used to bind the children. It was also noted that the color of the carpeting in the room could be similar to the color of the carpet fibers recovered from the clothing of the victims. C.C. Affiant has spoken to Dr. Howenstein and Jeff Nye of the MSP Crime Lab in Lansing, Michigan. Affiant was thereby informed that the clothing of the four children had been recently examined again and that additional trace evidence had been obtained. Two human hair fragments and one animal hair were found on the clothing of Christine Mihalik. White animal hairs were found on the coat of Mark Stebbins. White animal hairs were found on the clothing of Timothy King. D.D. Affiant was informed by an MSP crime lab specialist Heather Vida that even after nearly 30 years, that trace evidence such as human or animal hair, carpet fibers, and blood or DNA residue can be recovered from a house by searching in the air ducts, under baseboards or moldings or flooring, and that this evidence can be tested for comparisons with other samples. Affiant was also told that if a person or child bled through carpeting or flooring, it is possible that detectable amounts of DNA could be recovered from that blood. E. E. Affiant further states that based on the above information, there is probable cause to believe that seizure of trace evidence including human or animal hair, carpet fibers, and blood or DNA residue from the premises of X, Morning Terrace in Bloomfield Township, to be compared with evidence preserved and retained from the bodies and clothing of Mark Stebbins, Jill Robinson, Christine Mihalik, and Timothy King, is relevant and necessary to the continuing investigation of their abductions and murders. F. F. Affiant further requests that the search warrant, affidavit, and tabulation be suppressed from public view. You're listening to You Know They Know from the files of the Oakland County Child Killer Investigation with J. Ruben Appleman, author of The Kill Jar, Chronicle of Ten Years Investigating Detroit's Most Notorious Serial Killer Case, published by Simon & Schuster. The Kill Jar was the springboard for the Investigation Discovery TV show Children of the Snow, now on Hulu. You Know They Know is brought to you from the KRVX Studios in Boise, Idaho, with music from Patrick Benulkin. I'm J. Ruben Appleman. From the time I began researching the Oakland County Child Killings, also known as the OCCK, outside of Detroit, Michigan, to the time my book was finished, 10 years had passed. 
Those 10 years were a personal mess for me, and I chronicled that mess in the pages of The Kill Jar. Most readers understand why I did so, to tell the bigger story of how this case affected the millions of people, including myself, living with its grim inheritance. But some readers wanted more of the case. Less of me, more of that. And this podcast was born in response to to those readers and viewers of Children of the Snow asking for more. And it was also greatly born from the compelling evidence that indicates this case should have been solved years ago, leading me and others to wonder, was it? Each episode begins with a reading from the actual case files. The decades of investigative narratives and interrogation transcripts, the evidence trails and autopsy reports and polygraph results and all manner of supplementary documentation reporting from the hundreds of city, county, state, and FBI investigators who have touched this allegedly unsolved case. Today you heard from the ending of the affidavit for a search warrant for the uh, long-ago premises of one Christopher Bush. Uh, We'll get back to him soon. On the show with me today is Kathy Broad, formerly Kathy King, sister of victim number four to the Oakland County child killer. Um, We'll be talking about the Oakland County child killings in general, and I'll be digging into the case of the abduction and murder of, and we'll be digging into the case of the abduction and murder of, of Kathy's brother, victim number four, Timothy King. Um, as a reminder to those just turning in, tuning in with this episode, the from 1976 uh, to 1977, four children outside of Detroit were abducted, held in captivity, and, and eventually murdered. Um, the story we got from investigators in the press was that there were really no suspects that they were looking for, a lone serial killer of sort of maniacal skills, and um, they never found the guy, allegedly. Uh, 300 investigators uh, working on what was then the largest case murder case in, in American history in terms of finances put toward it. Um, uh, 300 investigators just picked up and left the case, more or less. A couple of people still work it to this day, but hundreds who had been assigned to this case stopped working it um, very shortly after it had been opened. Um, no more killings occurred, but nobody was pinned for these murders. Nobody was uh, even... Um, attempted to be indicted or anything like that. So why did this happen? Why was the case left cold? It's been 43 years. I did a book about the case. I did a TV show. Others have done things about the case. What is the story here? It was the largest murder case in uh, in American history at the time in terms of finances put toward finding the killer or killers. And then the investigation more or less stopped out of nowhere and was left cold. A lot was going on. The purpose of this podcast is to dissect everything related to that case and to ask the question, is it really cold? Are we really still searching? Or is there a lot of information that many, many, many hundreds of people already know and just simply can't talk about? Kathy King, Kathy Broad now, Kathy King was is this sister of uh, Timothy King, the fourth child abducted in this series of abductions. Tim was taken on March 16th, 1977, uh, just a couple of months after Christine Mihalik. Um, Kathy, uh, thanks for doing the show again, and um, let's, let's talk about your brother, if it's okay. Can you tell me what went down on the, on the day of, of his abduction? On March 16th, Jason, it had been one of those really warm, weird warm days in the Midwest. Like it had been 70 degrees that day. And so um, lots of kids were uh, running around because it was the first nice day of, you know, that winter, spring. And I was going out with some friends. It was um, a Wednesday night, so it was a school night, and my parents had given me permission, I was a senior in high school, to go out with my friends, and they had done that the prior week. And as I was starting to get ready to go, 
my mom came to me and said, um, your, your dad and I are going to go get a will signed for one of his clients, and I'm going to be a witness. And we have told him he can stay alone, and don't give him a hard time about that. And I thought, you know, why would I give him a hard time about that? But she said that. And my brother Chris was babysitting for someone else, and my brother Mark wasn't going to um, junior high play practice. So this was literally the first time that my parents had ever said Tim could stay alone. And, and he was ele- he Tim, was 11 years old. 11 years old in right. sixth grade. And, you know, I, I had... I started babysitting when I was in sixth grade, and Tim had been begging my parents to let him stay alone. So after everyone had left the house, um, Tim came to me and tried to butter me up. He said, you look really pretty. I was getting ready for this event. And I said, what do you want? You know, um, kind of laughing. And he asked if he could borrow money from me so he could walk up to the Hunter Maple Pharmacy about four blocks away and get candy. And I hesitated, um, not because of the child killer stuff or any of that. I hesitated because, you know, it was dusk and that you had to cross a fairly busy street to to get to Hunter Maple. And but I, I relented and I gave him the money. We discussed that I would be leaving and that I would leave the front door um, the screen door closed, but the front door ajar. And he left, and I left with my buddies soon after. And the last, so Tim did go eventually. He had a skateboard. He went to Hunter Maple. I think he was. I'm sorry, did you? He, it broke up a little bit. Did you say he went to Hunter Maple, which is the pharmacy? He, went, he did go to the pharmacy because one of the clerks. Um, said that she sold him candy probably around 8.30 at night. So he may not have gone directly to Hunter Maple, but he did buy candy there. And then he was uh, allegedly seen in the parking lot talking to a man standing next to a blue car with a white hockey stripe. And... Tim was never seen alive again by by anyone who knew him. Um, about nine o'clock, my parents got home. They had done this will signing and then gone out to dinner, and then they came home and Tim wasn't there. And as each of the rest of us showed up at home and didn't know where Tim was, um, my parents called the police about you know, soon, like soon after they got home because um, Tim wasn't home and he wasn't the kind of person who, I mean, this is before cell phones, right? But he would have left a note um, if, if there was, he was going to be gone for some extended period of time. So the police were called. They immediately went into, you know, this is serious business overdrive. Um, and by the next morning when he hadn't turned up you know there were helicopters circling the neighborhood and you know the news was out that you know that that Tim was probably abducted so when you said you know he wasn't the type to you know just disappear or whatever you know not only not only would would he not have been the type but it was the first night he was basically allowed to be alone and so certainly on that night would not be the night that he decides to like skedaddle at 11 years old he would have been like nervous about doing things right and not getting in trouble for breaking the rules because he had just been given new permissions and stuff um exactly so you loaned him some money um he went to the store um and never and never came back and that was about four blocks away 
uh, right. from your house. And I don't want to get off subject too much, but let's just say for a second, just if, if I can, if I'm remembering correctly, that the person we've talked about a couple of times in previous episodes, Christopher Bush, um, his family home was within what, a mile or something like that of your family home? Maybe two and a half, three miles, Jason. His um, his parents, his family home was fairly close to our high school. Okay, I don't want to get too off subject, but I just want to make a note of that so that we can go back to it in future episodes. Um, Tim doesn't show up, um, and the police are called, and then by the next day, helicopters are searching. Um and the area, especially with Tim's, I mean, now with Tim's abduction and possibly because of the sort of the wherewithal of your family, um, you know, your father was an attorney um, uh, and educated about processes and procedures and such. There, a lot of attention was brought to Timothy King's abduction and also not just because of maybe your, your family, but because clearly now we had four in a row. And or that's what it appeared to be, and um, well, yeah, it's less than a month after Christine's body is found, and as soon as the responding officer learned that Tim was eleven, he just said, "Oh, we have a very big problem." Who was the responding officer? Do you know? Or if you don't know, who were the task force people that got involved with your family soon after his abduction? Well, um, Don Stutt from the Birmingham Police Department, was a really young officer at, at the time. He was the responding officer. And then Officer Tim Gracie, from, these guys were both with Birmingham, the Birmingham Police Department. So at first, we were just dealing with the Birmingham Police Department. Like, um, the, those two officers, uh, one lived with us during the day and one lived at night. So... They were at our house 24-7. Why did, why did they live with you in those first few days? Um, well, for a variety of, of reasons. Um, you know, they tape-recorded our, our phone lines. Uh, people tried to extort my parents. Um, uh, we got a lot of, um, you know, crazy phone calls from, you know, even kids who were making crank calls. And so, you know, they were kind of monitoring that. They were running defense on the press. And, um, I mean, we looked at it as, as kind of a blessing that they were there um, running defense for us. Sure. So let, let's talk about the press in a second because uh, – there's a lot to, to talk about there, but let's let's back up for just a second. Tim Tim was seen talking to a man, um, and, and after witness statements were taken and such, and, and and one of those witnesses that that came out after those statements, and one of those witnesses said, "This man, uh, you know, he he looked like, um, you know, he's thin. He had um, blackish, darkish hair, pushed back a little bit. They described him and." um, sideburns and, um, and he was standing by a car that now becomes infamous in this case, the blue gremlin, um, which was a, a, a blue hatchback compact car with a, with a white stripe up its side. And, um, uh, a wanted poster was then circulated. This was the first time anybody had, had seen a living person talking to one of the subjects, one of the, excuse me, one of the victims right before they disappeared. So, this was the first clue, that, so to speak, to, to who might have done these crimes. And, and uh, a wanted poster was put up everywhere with a composite sketch of this guy and, and, and um, a blue gremlin and a $100,000 reward offered. I don't know if that's what it eventually ended up as or that's what it started as. I don't remember if it was 100000 from the get-go, I mean. But, but the posters, I remember, say $100,000 reward. And... and um, these these uh, I say posters like flyers they were posted they were they were uh, tacked all over the 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 area um, 
Everybody was looking for a gremlin. Everybody was looking for somebody who looked like that. Um, If you drove a gremlin, uh, one of those little blue hatchbacks, or sometimes even something that was even remotely similar, you were basically pulled over in, in... this in suburban Detroit or downtown Detroit and questioned about these crimes. Your trunks were, your trunk was looked in all of this stuff. So, um, this was not a small thing that somebody had been seen talking to Tim and, um, and boy, the press and the police went hog wild with this. So because they had a sort of, um, someone they were, they presumed had, had done this, this abduction, um, the press really went into overdrive because now they had something they could just uh, talk about 24-7. And um, what happened with... How much press did you actually... Did Tim's abduction actually get in this area? Oh, it got a ton of press, Jason. Um, I mean, news was not 24-7 then, but, um, you know, his picture... I mean, it was the opening story on the three main Detroit area channels, the newspapers. It was front page coverage um, for a long time, even after his body was found. But um, no, I remember cars driving, somebody taking a picture of our house as they drove by. I mean, there was intense press coverage. Uh, and radio. We, we don't want to forget radio. I remember there was a, a ton of radio coverage of this thing uh, at the time uh, as well. Now, you can't go back and find those clippings, but but you can find links to um, some audio that's been uploaded. Uh, I, yeah. think, I think it was WXYZ did a big, big, uh, Detroit did a big um, multi-part special on it or something like that. Um, yeah. But um, so, so... Your parents, I I remember, also made uh, public appearances, uh, public pleas to to the abductor or abductors um, uh, on TV. Were they also on radio? I can't remember, but on TV, um, and the, and 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 something was made out of this. Was it either your dad or your mom had said, you know, come home, we'll we'll um, make you chicken. Uh, your favorite dinner or something. This was kind of like a code for something. I want you to talk about this. I I think the police sort of did this on purpose or something. But anyway, when Tim's body was found and we'll talk about that, um, there was chicken and he had eaten chicken and it was in his intestines or something. And a lot was made out of that. And um, I don't know what to think about all that, but let let me stop and let you talk. This is, this is way more your story than it is mine. Um, What, well, there were two separate things, Jason. Um, the police first went to my parents and said, you know, we need you to make a public plea for your son's safe return. And that was done on camera. And um, my dad spoke. And, I mean, every time I see that, it is just so heartbreaking. Um, but he, you know, just spoke to Tim directly, and then he spoke to the people or person who had him, and, you know, he was really uh, remarkably calm. Although, when he came home from that, that is, like, one of the only times I ever saw him break down, and he was sobbing, and then he just pulled himself together. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was brutal. Then the police asked my mother to write a letter to the to the people who had him, and you know this this was not my mom's idea, but that was published I think only in the Detroit News. But she wrote a letter and she said, you know, when when Tim gets home, you know, I'm gonna get him his favorite foods. Um, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and he liked this one kind of cookie. And so um, it was, I mean, it it was also a very disturbing um, thing that the police even asked her to do it. And I remember one of my brothers saying, oh, this is is not good. Um, This might provoke something horrible. But um, she did it. The letter was, you know, I mean, it's, 
just so sad. But um, she does talk about his favorite meal, which was Kentucky Fried Chicken, and the medical examiner in in Wayne County did find um, chicken and corn um, had been ingested, you know, like a last meal before he was killed. So it's really sick. Which, you know, a lot of people then you, we, you presume or, or a lot of people did that, that the, the person who killed him or the people who had him in captivity, um, had seen or read these accounts, you know, had been paying attention to the public pleas, I should say. And um, a lot was also made out of the fact that had he been fed, uh, because he had been fed uh, something that he liked, that that um, the killer was in some sick way sympathetic. And so <clears throat> they started calling this killer the babysitter killer um, because Everybody had presumably been clean, uh, well-fed, etc. This was this sort of added to that that notion, and um, yeah. So w- Tim was Tim was missing for the sixth. He went missing on the sixteenth, and the seventeenth passes, and the eighteenth, and the nineteenth, and the twentieth, and the twenty-first, and then. Uh, on the twenty second, he was found. Well, can you can you talk about that? I think he was found around eleven forty five at night, Jason. And for sure, the killer or killers were paying attention to the media because in Oakland County, all that time Tim was missing, they basically suspended the Fourth Amendment and were just pulling cars over, especially gremlins and you know, doing these warrantless searches, and everyone complied. But um, that night, because, you know, enough time had passed, um, the decision had been made that they were going to start pulling cars over in Wayne County, which is adjacent, and it's where Detroit is located. But at the midnight shift on on the 22nd going into the 23rd, they were going to start, doing those types of searches of cars in Wayne County. So his body gets dumped, you know, sometime after 8 p.m. in Wayne County. So that person or people knew that it was going to up, they had up until midnight to dump his body more easily in Wayne County. And um, then some teenagers who were driving by or young adults, um, saw his body, which he had been dumped on the side of Gill Road, um, in front of basically in a ditch in front of this guy's house. And so that was about eleven forty-five at night that he was then, that he was that he was found. But you mentioned being that he was found. you mentioned being dumped sometime after eight. It's because at at, at around that eight hour that you mentioned, n- there was nothing in that ditch. Is that what you're saying? And then, um, no, that's um, that's from what I read from the medical examiner's notes. Um, judging from the condition of the body, oh, of time his body, of, time of death, yeah, time of death was around eight. Um, discovery, so not, right? Yeah, yeah. So, that man who owned the house, there was some time period where he had, you know, gone outside or heard something outside and. That was maybe an hour or two before that. So, um, you know, the body's found at 11.45, exactly what time his body was dumped. I, I don't know. And you said he was dumped in a ditch. And, you know, the, the, the reports uh, or the, the press reports and the, and the common lore around Timothy King um, and, and the other children, for that matter, as well, was that they were just neatly neatly laid out um and and um that we know that's not the case um right when you actually see the the photographs like i unfortunately i think i showed you a photograph you hadn't seen before um or at least did to your brother um uh chris um where tim was you know the 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 
the drop site photos, Tim was photographed and just kind of laying on his stomach and like sprawled out like somebody who had been dumped. Not, yeah, not the uh, tidy, neat, arms crossed, laid out, pretty and clean like the babysitter would have done. Um, not that, right. Al- although that was in that was that was common lore for a long, long time. I don't, I don't know how totally common lore. Um, even Jack Kalflesh, who you and I have discussed, knows ton about this case. Livonia PD, because Kim's body was dumped in Livonia, Livonia did not let anybody else onto the crime scene, which is actually, you know, how they, how this handled in the other kids' cases as well. So Jack had seen Kim's body, um, and he told me, you know, even though he hadn't seen Kim's body, he believed all four kids were found on their back. But you and I both know from that horrifying photo that he was just dumped like a piece of garbage. And he had a bruise, a really significant bruise on his forehead, which the medical examiner and and everybody else, police who had seen his body, they all want to say that that happened um, when he was dropped, you know, on his face. You know, um, that's where the bruising and the lividity came from. But um, I saw him at the funeral home, and he looked like he had been beaten, Jason, like beaten. Um, But, yeah, he was found on his face. He was dumped. Um, He was not laid out and, you know, made to look all pretty. Um, He was dumped in a hurry, face first. So, your family is uh, alerted that that they found Tim. How did how did that go down? Well, um, okay. So Don must have been with us because it was night. Nobody says a word to us. We have you know friends, neighbors who are stopping by, and the TV was on, um, and the Johnny Carson show was on, and those little tickers that used to go across the bottom of, you know, a screen uh, with, like, a little news thing said, you know, the body of a young boy was found, you know, at 1145 in Livonia. So that's how we found out on TV. And then, um, you know, I'd say within the next 90 minutes, the police chief and, you know, I don't know, our priest, a bunch of people showed up, so nobody told us anything. My dad heard it on the radio, he was in his room, my mom, I saw it on TV, and then, you know, we knew. Your dad heard it on the radio, you said, and your mom saw it yeah. on TV, and... Right, and so did I. And you, so did you. And my other two brothers were asleep, but yeah, that's how we learned. So, that's tough. Um, what... I mean, just to put it mildly, that's just... And Don Stutt was sitting with you, though, and did do you think Don Stutt knew, or they didn't? Um, I think he knew because my mom said she suspected something was up because when, when there was a shift change between the a.m. and the p.m., you know, police, both of them went out front to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so... She said she suspected something was up, but, um, you know, probably at that point there hadn't been verification. Um, so let, let's talk about what, what you were told at the time. I mean, how, how much did they tell you at the time about how Tim had, had died or what he had gone through in, in captivity? Um, well, you know, the police didn't say anything, certainly, um, to me and I don't think to my parents, but, um, you know, and they were trying to keep the newspapers from us, uh, my parents were, but uh, my brother and I just went to the grocery store and bought the newspaper and there was a, I remember it so distinctly, a chart because, you know, there had been so many kids and young young people who had wound up dead in Oakland County. So they had on the left side these kids' faces, and, and now they've added my brother's face to the chart. 
And then you go across, and it's like, you know, how many days missing, sexually assaulted. It was all just right there. Um, so, you know, it's we we knew from the other cases. Um, so wait, at the very beginning. I'm sorry, from the very beginning, you're saying that chart, which is a famous picture of the four kids in a row, I think is what you're talking about? Um, no, it was more than the four kids, Jason. It was all those young people in, in Oakland County in the past 18 years. I'm sorry, you're, that, you're breaking up. It was all those, just uh, let me recap what I think you said. It was all those it, it other wasn't children. It was the four kids. It was um, Cynthia you know, Sheila Schrock and Cynthia and Jane Allen and... Okay. Kimberly King, um, I think it was Kimberly King, too. There's no relation. But um, so this is the day after um, Tim has been um, found. And that's the newspaper that, that my brother and I read. And that's how we knew you know, what had happened. Okay. But they, 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 but they didn't let out at that time, they weren't saying that Tim was sexually assaulted or anything like that, were they? Oh, it was in the news. It was in the, as soon as the um, medical examiner report had come out, um, you know, they said, they said right away that he had been sexually assaulted as soon as they knew. Uh, so... <laughs> I mean, what you're telling me is is that um, it's contradictory to what became the the lore, um, because pe- people often, for years and years and years, say that 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 the boys were assaulted. But first, they said they weren't for many years. Then they said they were, but with an object. Um, what what exactly did they say immediately about t- about your brother that he had been sexually assaulted? Did they say they found? Uh, semen and things like that or do they just say like it was like with Mark how they tried to say that it was like post-mortem and with an object well I you know there were a couple of things going on Jason I mean they did say right away um, that Tim had been sexually assaulted but they don't go into any detail and then as you probably know from reading the the, uh, medical examiner's notes they do speculate um, openly in the transcript, but it's not. And so that, that, that I'm sorry, that, you, you broke up again. That it they speculate that it what? That the boys had been raped post mortem with an object. Okay. Um, but that's when that you know, I, I can't remember when that part came out. But they just kept it, you know, sexually assaulted. But you know, nobody asked any questions. It was pretty obvious what that meant so at the time clearly there was a lot going on with with uh pedophiles and such in the in the area at the time was your family cued into any of that stuff no no absolutely not um when this you know when the investigation continued and they started talking about these um, people who, you know, raped kids. I mean, that was just like a foreign concept. And uh, when the task force that had been created that was causing all this, you know, information to circulate, whatever information could circulate was circulating through the task force to the news and such as they worked it sort of busily for a while. When that task force pulled out, um, what was the, what was the feeling of, which, which is a, maybe about a year or so after Tim's, uh, death or, or, or sooner than that, you, you tell me, um, what was the general feeling of, of the family? Well, they, uh, that was December of 78 that the, the task force folded. And, you know, I think uh, certainly for my mom, it was like nothing was going to bring Tim back. And when you read some of her quotes in the newspaper, she was like, you know, we need to look at this stuff to protect other kids and other families. But, you know, um, I would say it was resignation. And we all felt like 
I'm not kidding you. We felt sorry for the police um, because they were, you know, it was obviously hard to deal with us, but every time some representative of law enforcement came to our house, I mean, they were devastated. Um, you know, I remember being interviewed by an FBI agent while Tim was missing, and the guy could not even look me in the eyes. I mean, he was practically crying because he knew what was happening to Tim. But the um, head, the commander um, of the task force from the state police just wrote my parents this, you know, pathetic letter that said, you know, um, God, sorry, we did the best we can, we could, and we came up shorthanded, and you know, thank you and your family for your cooperation and Godspeed. And I'm not kidding you, that was that. So decades go by, um, and the the killer or killers responsible for Mark Stebbins, Joe Robinson, Christine Mihalik, and Timothy King um, are not, presumably not found. Um during these decades, how many times did your father, um, uh, as an attorney um, or as a parent, uh, submit requests for information about the case? And I mean, we don't need the entire backstory of all of it, all of all of it. But how many times would you guess that? Over the years, he reached out to police in some official capacity as an attorney or as his, or as a parent with um, pretty legitimate documentation, documented requests for information. I would say, Jason, that he never reached out as an attorney, and it it becomes clear in hindsight that you know Don Stutt, who had lived with us, who who is a friend of our family, and he's still. You know, at this point, he's still with Birmingham PD. He was the conduit, and he would, if something came up, um, like, you know, some priest, um, they they get a line on some priest. There were a number of times that they came to my dad with with names of priests, and did we know so-and-so, things like that. As As possible suspects, you're saying? Correct. Okay. And, and that would come up fairly regularly, um, like, you know, I don't know, a couple of times a year. And at one point, believe it or not, um, you know, like there would be convicts, like Richard Lawson, who I'm sure we'll talk about again, but, you know, a couple decades ago, he, he wanted to talk to my dad. And, you know, um, just my dad went... And to the prison and talked to him, and everyone thought he was just full of shit. Um, but I don't, I, my, it was more like the police, Don would approach our family and say, here's what they're looking at, you know, does this make any sense? So when did your father start to doubt that the police were, how long did he hang in there trusting the police? Oh, until 2007, Jason. So that's 30, um, that's 30 years. Yeah. Okay. And what happened in 2007 that, what, what was, what was the turn? Well, the turn was when, um, Patrick Coffey had, had come to me and to my brother and said, you know, this polygrapher, Larry Wasser told me that he polygraphed, um, this, this guy who, confess to killing your brother. So once that information was kind of locked in, um, I told my dad because he was, he was so behind law enforcement that I knew that if, if I went to him with that information prematurely, he would have gone to the state police and they would have never looked at that information. So until kind of, Wasser and, and the name Chris Bush come to light, that's when the bulbs start going off. So let me just recap if people are just listening into this episode um, and only caught portions of the affidavit for a search warrant or portions of our conversation. Um, 
in 2007, somebody who uh, was a polygrapher who had grown up in your area, who became a polygrapher, he says, because of this case when he was a child, um, stuck with him. He, he got into some version of law enforcement as a polygrapher. And um, this person was talking to another polygrapher and, and the second one, Larry Wasser. So this is Patrick Coffey was the first one who had become a polygrapher to basically because of this case, he was telling this story about his life, basically about how he got into this. And he was telling this to Larry Wasser, who was another polygrapher and Wasser's Wasser's face lit up. Basically Patrick, as Patrick Coffey says, um, tells it. And, and Wasser said, I polygraphed the guy who did, did Timothy King, who, who killed Timothy King. And then he regrets saying this, um, and Patrick Coffey, uh, anyway, in, in the meantime, um, tells your family. And and a, a lot of information is brought to light about, about Christopher Bush suddenly um, because they figured out... Uh, basically, Wasser was sued for that information. He, he recanted and then, and then they, they didn't... Because he had never given a name. And basically, he was taken to court to provide that name. And... Um, he he eventually provided clues about that name. Uh, basically, he said uh, some things. Can you can, can we? Is there maybe a way to tell this story? It's so complicated. Is there a way to maybe tell it in a, in a minute? He he won't be forthcoming with the name. So I go to um, Corey Williams at the Livonia Police Department. They file an investigative subpoena. Wasser get to compel him to give the name. He's ignorant about the name, but, oh, if you show me a couple of files from the, from the Flint State Police Post, because uh, he was polygraphed by Ralph Cabot and Flint, I may be able to piece this together Hold on, hold on, but let's back up for just a second, because he, when you say he was polygraphed, it was Christopher Bush. So Wasser says... I can't remember the name, but if you show me some stuff, maybe it'll jog my memory. Because yeah, Chris, I, I Christopher remember. Bush, hold on just a second, because Christopher Bush was polygraphed by Ralph Cabot, the polygrapher at the time. Right. Uh, when yeah, he, when, I, I remember that he was polygraphed by um, you know Ralph Cabot and Flint, and so there's like five files on a table, and Wasser picks up one and says, "She was, I think it's this guy." Um, He's basically finding a way not to utter Chris Bush's name because he's breached the attorney-client privilege right in his own ethical um, constraints by by saying what he said to Patrick, and now he's got to reveal it. So, so let me let me just stop again, just for a second, for clarity for the for the listeners. Um, Larry uh, uh, Christopher Bush was polygraphed. Christopher Bush, who, who would later become a prime suspect in this case, and currently at that time was as well, although the, pu- the public didn't know it. He was polygraphed in Flint, Michigan, related to criminal sexual conduct charges he was being um, uh, uh, um, indicted for. And he was polygraphed about those and about the, the child killings. And uh, Larry, he was polygraphed by Ralph Cabot, but Larry Wasser, you said breaking attorney-client privilege, it's because Larry Wasser was, had done, a, I think, what, what's called a pre-polygraph polygraph with Bush's attorney. He was hired by Bush's attorney to conduct a polygraph, not as part of state's evidence, so to speak. Is that correct? On a completely different um, criminal sexual conduct case, Jason, after the child murders, this victim was a girl, and um, he had... You know, and, and then was a living victim, and he. So they were trying to polygraph him, that they could take this private polygraph to the prosecutor to get him to drop the charges. I see, and in that, and because it doesn't go well in the pre-polygraph interview, uh, Wasser does not polygraph him because he knows what's going to happen. I see. So Christopher Bush is asked. If he, if if my memory is correct, and if what what you're saying processes right through me, Christopher Bush is, is push Bush is asked about whether or not he had anything to do with these murders, and um, he basically confessed. Is this what you're saying? I, 
I think it's a little different, Jason. Like in the pre-polygraph interview, the polygrapher is trying to establish, um, you know, a baseline so that you don't have a false positive. So you basically have to tell the polygrapher, you know, all the all the funky shit that you've done so that they can craft the, the questions to make sure that they're only talking about this case with the girl. So during the time when they're discussing this, and it's covered by attorney-client privilege because Wasser has been hired by Bush's attorney to do this. So during the time when they're talking about the ground rules for the polygraph and, you know, setting the bar, that's when Bush is alleged to have said to Wasser, yeah, I didn't do this one, but, you know, I'm in up to my ears um, in this other shit. And, and that's when he tells Wasser you know, about my brother. And that's how Wasser relates it to Patrick. I, you know, I polygraphed the guy who killed your neighbor boy. Um, and polygraph is loose because he, they don't do the polygraph because Wasser knows this is going to go well for Chris Bush after what he said about his involvement in these other crimes. I see, I see, I see. So the narrative that's been passed down to me um, previously and that I've passed down as well um, is is using that strict thing of I polygraphed the guy who did this, but really he was going to polygraph the guy who did this and bailed on the polygraph because he knew how it would go. Yeah, it's like, oh shit, you know, we can't have this thing in the record. Um so, you know, good move on his part. But, and uh, he and he was able to not be compelled to, to... He was able to avoid saying Christopher Bush's name because he was acting at that time on behalf of the, uh, the attorney for Christopher Bush. Right. And the judge said, um, you know, I don't want to see your files. This goes to the investigative subpoena thing. He said, I don't need to see your files, but you're going to give us that name. And that's when... This is how I characterize it. Wasser constructs a symbol. God, my memory's faulty, blah, blah, blah. Because he, you know, he's a big wig in the polygraph community. So he doesn't want to be seen as giving up the name in this situation. So he constructs this facade. Um, you know, they, they ultimately he doesn't testify in the stand. He tells Wayne County... I'll meet with you, and I'll look at these files, and maybe that will jog my memory, and I'll be able to tell you who it, who it was. Right. So he, he's able to then say, I never said the name Chris Bush. You know, I picked up the, the file, looked at it, and then pushed it across to Corey Williams and said, yeah, this looks like the guy. Right. So we're talking about, and he's saying he did that in '77. Uh, I don't know the date of that, but you know, um, Kim was murdered in March of '77, and um, Bush winds up dead in November of '78. So that that had to have happened between March of '77 and right. the end of November of '78. Right. So November. So let's let's back up a little bit. And just to recap for people, um, uh, Mark Stebbins is abducted in 76, beginning of 76. Jill Robinson, end of 76. Christine Mihalik, um, beginning of 77. Tim King, a couple of months into 77. And and then um the largest task force in, in, in U.S. history is, is com- compiled and to, to solve this case. And, um, I mean, millions of dollars, FBI, state police, multiple counties, a number of cities. And, um, and sometime within a year and a half of Timothy King going missing, uh, Chris, someone named Christopher Bush is brought up on, uh, or actually he was brought up on charges before Tim was missing, but Christopher Bush is, is, um, at around that time brought up on charges of criminal sexual conduct with a number of children. Um, he's brought up on those charges with another guy named Gregory Green, who has a long history of criminal sexual conduct with children. And, and, uh, 
this this polygrapher states that within that period between Timothy King and Christopher Bush dying, Christopher Bush uh, basically confessed to uh, involvement in the murder of Timothy King. And uh, shortly after that, Christopher Bush winds up dead. A picture of Mark Stebbins is found in Christopher Bush's um, residence. Uh, Ligatures are found in Christopher Bush's residence. And uh, the suicide of the alleged suicide of Christopher Bush, really, when we get into that suicide report, shows that it 95 percent, 99 percent, 110 percent, probably what could not have been a suicide. Um, And like a month or two after his suicide and his confession and stuff found in his residence related to the murders or indict sort of a you know, pointing him, pointing the murders at him as well. Um, a, a month or so after his death, the task force shuts down and disappears and the hundreds of investigators uh, go on to other things. Under what, in, in, what's, in what world would somebody with the amount of evidence pointing at Christopher Bush, um, would, would, in what world would, would, would Christopher Bush not be uh, held held in, in 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 a jail somewhere and questioned for days and days and days and days and days until they could prove that he had nothing. To, this is a guy who's already uh, about to be found guilty of these other criminal sexual conduct charges, which he only gets a penalty of a thousand dollars in probation for. But in what world does does Christopher Bush get to walk away from this Timothy King murder? What what went? How well, did that happen? I'll tell you in what world, in on planet Oakland County, because not only was he, um, you know, let off the hook on those um, Jan- on, in the January 77 arrest in Flint, but at the time of his death, Jason, he has four pending child rape cases um, kind of around the state of Michigan. Like, so, you know, in what world does this happen? It happens in Oakland County when the prosecuting attorney at the time, Al Brooks Patterson, announces a month before my brother's body is found that although they polygraphed Bush and Green for, um, uh, you know, concerning um, Mark Seven's murder, well, you know, um, they passed the polygraph and they let him go. That's the world where that happens. And then everything that's happened subsequently has, you know, had an impact on that decision. Um, Because literally a month to the day where the newspaper reports Patterson saying, these guys passed, you know, they're not involved, yada, yada, Tim winds up dead. So that's, and that's the world the world where, you know, his co-defendant in the Flint cases from January goes to prison for life and his and and Bush's dad pays a thousand bucks and then Bush is out continuing to victimize, um, you know, beyond my brother's murder, he's, you know, he's also victimized in these four other cases that are pending when he winds up dead. And when he winds up dead, he winds up dead, and then our buddy, the medical examiner Robert Sillery, you know, does totally lame autopsy. It's you know, um, there's no obituary. There's just a death notice. Um, you know, they don't take the gun from the Bush residence at the time. They, you know, Bluefield Township comes back later and hey ask the you know the dad hey H. Lee you know you mind if we take that gun and, and take a look at that um, you know that you know this this happens if you're rich and you were living in Oakland County back in the day and you know when you talk about would my parents have been demanding answers that the whole construct was 
that this murderer was one single diabolical person who was really well-versed in, you know, evidentiary standards from back in the day. And gee whiz, we had no evidence. We'd really like to help you out, Mr. and Mrs. King, but we got nothing, and we tried our hardest. And we all ate that bullshit. Um, you know, this, this killer was so smart um, that we, you know, we kind of, we understand why the cops never got anywhere with it. Um, but, you know, certainly when Bush shows up dead um, and they they go to hit the suicide, alleged suicide scene, um, who gets called to, to the scene? Two members of the Child Killer Task Force. So when you talk about the picture of Mark Stebbins, which was hanging up in his room, the ligatures, found on his closet floor. I mean, the scene couldn't have screamed child killer more loudly. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.